We're studying chapter three. As you know, I think you know that in the book of Ephesians. So let's bring that up and start to look at uh, our analysis of chapter three <clears throat> in the book of Ephesians. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, just one or two quick thoughts here before we get get rolling. Um, chapters one through three of the book of Ephesians are heavy doctrinal chapters. Then chapters four, five, and six are going to be very practical uh, chapters. And I will argue that sound doctrine, chapters one, two, three, produces godly living, chapters four, five, six. That's the argument we're going to be following. We will not get into chapter four today, but perhaps by next week we will. We already started chapter three, but I want to I want to go over the introductory verses again. Now, if you look at the the PowerPoint slide that you have in front of you, I've drawn a series of arrows, first of all, uh, between the word grace that starts in verse 2, it appears in verse 7, and it appears again in verse 8. Paul is the apostle of grace. We saw that when we studied chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where Paul makes that marvelous argument that it is only by grace through faith that we're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then in chapters 11, uh, verse 11 through 22 of chapter 2, he dealt with the whole issue of how does the doc, gospel of grace impact the church? Gentiles who were outside of uh, the blessing are now brought into the blessing by grace through faith in Christ, so that there's now a unified body, body of Christ, a new house, a new home, and a new temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The other aspect that I want you to note that I've highlighted with arrows is the term mystery. You see it in verse 3, you see it in verse 6, and then you see it again in verse 9. One of the things I do in Bible study is I try to note the repetition of a key word, and then in my Bible, and so I do it when I do slides like this, I do it on the slides as well. I draw arrows or circle them and connect them or do something, because obviously that's a very important term. And here in, in what Paul is arguing in this verse, excuse me, in this paragraph, those two terms, grace and the term mystery, are the two key terms that help us to unravel what is going on here. So let's read this again. I want to read those introductory verses, but I want to make sure that you're clear on something I said last week. The term mystery, what we're doing, what I didn't do that, but what the translators do is they bring a word from the Greek language, letter for letter into the English language. That's called transliteration. But the problem with doing it, it's all right to do that. We do that a lot when we're uh, translating foreign languages into English. But the problem or challenge with that is you don't define it then. And the way we look at the word mystery in 2021 is you think of an Agatha Christie novel or some uh, mystery on television or you know any of the many, many mystery books that are out there. That's really not the idea at all. The idea of mystery in, in ancient Greek is something that was hidden is now revealed. It's there, it's there in the scripture, but it's revealed much more clearly in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And so what's the mystery that Paul's talking about here in this paragraph? The mystery is the Gentiles, non-Jews, the Gentiles 
coming into the place of blessing. And that is, of course, all of the blessings of the new covenant. And so you see again, you see it in verse 3, you see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 9. And each time, that's what Paul is talking about. Something that was hidden is now revealed and made clear. And again, the key to what is revealed and now made clear is the grace of God. All right, I want to read the first six verses. For this reason, what Paul was discussing in the previous verses 11 through 22, Paul, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, that, that you know this, but I want to remind you of this. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter took the message to the Jews. Philip took the message to the Samaritans. Paul takes the message to the Gentiles. It is Paul who pretty much blankets the Mediterranean world, the Greco-Roman world, with the gospel. And that's why he's arguably called that, and that was the stewardship responsibility God gave to him. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that was given to me for you. And I put in, in blue brackets there his role as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, let me comment one more time about that term stewardship. That it, we're translating there a, a Greek word, oikonomia, which we get a word economy from that. It's, it's an administrative uh, entrusting by God of a responsibility. And that responsibility that God has entrusted to Paul is the message of the grace of God. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, taking to them the message of the grace of God. And then he moves into this key term, which I've highlighted now several times, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, so that revelation, and you see that in, in the brackets, that revelation is, of course, on the Damascus Road. But then what followed the Damascus Road, as Paul would unpack all of his theology as a, as a Pharisee and repackage it with the central theme that Jesus is his personal Messiah and the Messiah of Israel. And so Paul's just saying, I know this, I understand this, it's clear to me now, as a part of my stewardship, what God has entrusted to me, this mystery by revelation, which God has revealed to me. In verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And again, that term mystery, insight into the mystery of Christ. So the Lord has given him special insight. That's really a word that's used in a lot of the Old Testament wisdom literature, like Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, that special insight, that special capacity to understand the importance of something God's revealed, and it's the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed. And so it was there, but it wasn't, it wasn't clear but now it's made known, it's revealed, to whom or by whom? Through the holy apostles, and Paul would be one of those, and prophets by or 
literally, I would prefer to translate that through the Spirit. The Spirit is the instrument, the means by which God has revealed these truths to the apostles and to the prophets. Now, the term prophet there, this is a, this is a little curious because this, this has created a little bit of, of difficulty in, in interpreting this. It can mean, and perhaps does, the prophets of the Old Testament, but it can also mean the prophets of the New Covenant. Now, in the sense that, because prophet, the, the word prophet literally means proclaiming or declaring truth that's revealed. And so Jeremiah is a prophet. He's proclaiming and declaring truth that's been revealed to him. A New Testament prophet, and that is a term that's used in, in various books of the New Testament, is someone who's proclaiming or declaring truth that's been revealed. It can be truth that's been revealed by means of the Holy Spirit, or it can be truth that is revealed in the growing canon of Scripture. And so that's all he's saying. This is, this is clear now. This truth, this mystery is now clear. And this mystery, now verse 6, he defines it. Here's the content of the mystery. This is what's now revealed, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. All right, now, let's take apart each one of those. This is a little bit of an echo of what we saw in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. Fellow heirs. That is a fantastic theme that Paul developed throughout his writings. It's really in Galatians chapter 4 quite formidably and, and comprehensively. Fellow heirs of what? Fellow heirs of the kingdom. And that's that, that term heir, just what it means today, it's that you now share in the inheritance of someone. Well, what is that inheritance? It is to rule and reign with Jesus. Paul writes this in Galatians 4. It's a magnificent chapter. But we are joint heirs with Christ. We will rule and reign with Christ. In, in my judgment, Revelation 20 tells us it's a thousand-year kingdom. But we will rule and reign with Christ, which you think about that and you meditate upon that. That's profound. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom. We're the joint heirs with Christ. And so what Paul is saying is part of that mystery that's now revealed is Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile who will both put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile will rule as fellow, and that word fellow has the idea of equal, joint, equal heirs. One group isn't going to be better than the other or more sophisticated than the other. There is a joint heir nature to being a citizen of the coming kingdom, another theme that's developed in the New Testament. Second, members of the same body. Again, that has echoes of verses 11 through 22. The body, that's the metaphor Paul uses, his favorite metaphor, for the church. It's the living, organic body of Jesus. And again, members of the same body. The Jews aren't better or have a higher position in the body? No, equal members. That's one of the themes of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And then thirdly, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And now the promise, it can, it can mean a number of things, 
But the, the main promise that I think Paul is focusing on and the context help us to understand that is the promise of the new covenant, all of the new covenant promises that are centered in, in Christ Jesus. And that's why that preposition in Christ Jesus is so important. So we're partakers of the promise. Remember, the new covenant was first promised to Israel, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, for example. But now that new covenant, you and I partake of that too. New covenant is God puts his moral law in our hearts. He puts his spirit within us, and we can walk in loving obedience with him. What was promised to Israel in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, is also promised to Gentiles, non-Jews, who put their faith in Christ. And I want you to think of one more item here. When Jesus is instituting the Lord's table in the upper room, communion, Eucharist, whatever your tradition calls it, when the Lord is introducing that, he, they're eating the Passover meal. He takes the bread and says, this, is your, this bread is my body, which is for you. And then he takes the Passover cup filled with wine, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That is strategically important, that when you hear your pastor say that on a morning when you're partaking of communion or whatever in your church, and he says, as he, re, as he quotes from Jesus' words or quotes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the new covenant in my blood that is instrumentally strategic for us. We partake of the new covenant. And what makes the new covenant participation possible for us, Jew or Gentile, is the shed blood of Christ. And so that, that promise in Christ Jesus is the new covenant promise that then has attached to it all the other promises that God has made. And again, that's discussed a little bit in 11 through 22 of chapter, chapter 2. And so what's the mystery? That, that Gentiles now share equally in the spiritual blessings of salvation with Jews. Those who put their faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are equal spiritually equal, and he itemizes these three elements of that equality. Joint heirs, members of the body of Christ, the church, and partakers of the promise, primarily in context, the new covenant promise. How is that possible? By means of the gospel. Gospel is a translating a Greek word, which can mean good news. That's good news for Gentiles. That's good news for non-Jews who hear these covenant promises and now are applied to their life by faith. That's the gospel. And so Paul is just saying in these first six verses, my role is a minister, a proclaimer, a herald of these good news truths. And the content of the mystery is that Jew and Gentile can share in this equally. And I, I said that, I think I said that last week. For you and me in 2021, this is important, it's profound truth, but you have no idea how profound this was in the first century. To hear this proclaimed, that all of the covenant promises you can now share in through the message of the gospel, Jew and Gentile equally, because God has created a new institution, a new, think of those metaphors from last week, a new home, 
a new body, and a new temple. The new covenant has a high priest. It's Jesus. The new covenant has a temple. It is our bodies. The new covenant has sacrifice. It is we present ourselves to God as a holy, living, acceptable sacrifice to him. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And so what Paul is unpacking something which is deeply profound and radical in first century context. And so he's developing this, and he uniquely develops it here in Ephesians. He's developing this for the blessing and benefit of these Ephesian believers. They are not Jews. They're Gentiles. And they're in that key gateway to Asia city, the city of Ephesus. Now, he wants, he's going to go on now. There's some wonderful truth coming up in verse 7 through 11. 7 through 13, excuse me. Uh, let me stop here for a moment. Any questions? Jim, um, can, you, mystery. can you explain, um, <clears throat> can you explain, let's see, if, can you hear me okay? I, yeah, that should be coming over, is it? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, what the stumbling block is for Jews, to, Jews today, uh, I know we've reviewed it in the past, but I think it's probably good to review it now because if, in fact, he is the Savior of all, including the Old Testament Jews and current-day Jews, as well as uh, Christians, what is the stumbling block today for the, the Jewish people who continue to meet in their synagogues and refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Well, it's, uh, it's twofold, and there are flip sides of the same coin. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that the cross is a stumbling block. That's literally what he said, the cross is a stumbling block. And with that, the other side of that coin is the, the premise that Jesus is the Messiah. And you put those two together, it is, it is difficult, and it is the barrier. It remains difficult for a Jew of the 21st century uh, to accept the idea that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus died on the cross for them. It is the cross that is the stumbling block. That's literally what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. But attached to that is it was very difficult in the first century. It's difficult in the 21st century for a Jewish person to understand that their Messiah has to die on a cross for their salvation. The expectation in the first century was a Messiah who would be a political Messiah. Any other questions about these first uh, six verses? <clears throat> Your thought paper is to explain in five sentences the content of the mystery. Okay? Now, that's a behavioral objective. You should be able to do that. So knowing you won't do it, let me move into verse 7. Of this gospel, and I just drew an arrow, it's the same gospel with everything that's explained in the previous verses, of this good news, that's what gospel means, of this good news, I was made a minister. Now that's in, that's in the passive voice, I was made, God is the one who did that. That is not what he chose, that's what God chose for him to be a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And that, that 
little phrase according to its preposition in the Greek language is kata. That's the standard. According to the standard, the gift of God's grace. He's a minister of the gospel, which is what? The gift of God's grace. That echoes back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, uh, 7, 8, 9. That salvation is a gift of God. But for by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast, summarizing Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And so he's repeating himself here, but to, to make sure you understand this, that Paul sees his role as a minister. A, the word minister can be, even be translated like a servant, one who serves according to what? What's the standard? His hard work? Well, he works hard. His willingness to be a martyr? He will be that. His willingness to be persecuted, he will be. But that's not how he's framing it. His willingness to be the messenger, the herald of the gift of God's grace. And this is always imperative, and I know you know this, but I'll just repeat it. It's always imperative to remember that the word gift is always connected with the word grace. God does it all. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, you do nothing to earn or merit your salvation. As you've heard me say when we would be in the room there at First National, I put a, pl- a pen on the table and say, if you want God's gift of salvation, you must pick up the gift. If you don't pick up the gift, it's never appropriated to your life. You remain dead in your sin, to use the words of Ephesians 2.1. Now, I'm just I'm repeating things, but to just strategically zero in on the term gift and the term grace. Can I ask a question about grace? Uh, yes. The, um, the rendering here, does it have the same root as love? Because no. uh, it's no. uh, translated charity in the King James, and it seems to have the same prefix. Is that simply accidental? That's terrible. That's one <laughs> of the fallacies of the King James translation. Got it. Because when they use chair, you can see I put it there in in blue. It's caritas. Mm -hmm. And you can see charity. As a matter of fact, when you read the old King James, you read 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. It's terrible. It's terrible translation. They use the word charity. Love, charity is love. Charity is this. Charity is charity. It's not puff up and all those kinds of things. And I mean, in... In uh, 17th century, in early 17th century England, which is when the King James was translated, 1611, you may you, you may understand what that means. But in 21st century English, to use the word charity as a synonym for agape love is a terrible translation. It really is. It's 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 grace, Russ. It's caritas. It's 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 derivative of charis, grace. And I mean, it's it's here. Um, it's a little bit of a different term, but it's it's from that root. But no, agape and charis, charis or caritas are not related etymologically at all. Thank you. They're connected, but they're not related etymologically. Right, <laughs> obviously. All right. Um, where am I here? According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power, by God's power when he saved me. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints— this grace was given. Now, I want you to notice something, and I, that's why I drew a line there between those two. How does Paul see his ministry? 
He's a servant, an act of God's grace. And he sees it again, says it again. Though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given. It's, again, a passive voice. God is the one acting. God's given him this grace. And so that's important to understand that Paul sees his ministry, his stewardship responsibility, as a gracious gift from God, a gracious stewardship from God. It is part of not the saving grace of God, but the sustaining grace of God. Remember, grace is used in the Bible in three ways. Common grace, which God showers his abundant, unmerited favor on all human beings despite their relationship with him. Jesus says, God sends the rain and the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. It has nothing to do with your relationship with God. He chooses, in his sovereign providence, he chooses to abundantly shower all of humanity with what is needed to sustain life, sun, rain, food, everything you need. God sustains that. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. But he chooses to do it. Saving grace is what we talked about in chapter 2. Verses one through or verses four through through ten, it's when God God showers upon us through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, the opportunity to have an eternal relationship with Him by grace through faith or saved, and then His sustaining grace. We not only are saved by grace, we live by grace, and that's what Paul's focusing on here. My ministry now, as a ministry of this gospel, which he's just discussed is a gift of God's grace. And this gift was given, this grace was given, the middle there of verse 8. Again, God's grace explains Paul, even his stewardship responsibility. And so, again, I I mean, I've said this many times here in, in our class over the years, and I've said this in a number of other contexts. We live by God's grace. We are sustained by God's grace. And that is true the moment you're born till the moment you die. But you put your faith in Jesus Christ, which is by grace through faith. You are then spiritually sustained by means of the Holy Spirit in God's grace. He owes us nothing. He offers us everything. That is grace. I want to make one other thing. I didn't underline this or put it in red, but in verse 8, though I am the very least of all the saints... Typically, most people who are Christians would not say, well, I don't regard Paul as the least of all the saints. I regard Paul as one of the giants. I regard him as one of the heroes of the faith. Why does he say, I'm very the very least of all the saints? Why does he say that? He's self-effacing. I'm sorry? He is, he is self-effacing. Yes, okay, that's right, yeah. What did he do before he came to Christ? He was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. He was throwing Christians. And so he sees himself as not deserving this gracious salvation and this gracious assignment. It's almost like he's saying, if anyone did not deserve this, it is I. I'm the least of all people God could have chosen 
to given this stewardship responsibility of being the minister of the grace of God, it was, I, I didn't deserve this. I'm the very least of all. And so it's a combination of his, which is so powerfully present in all that Paul writes, his humility and his dependence on God, but also reflecting on the enormity of God's grace in his life. And you know this, but I'll repeat it. Nothing explains Paul except God's grace. Nothing. What turned him around was meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. Because before that moment in his life, he was heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, and the only explanation of Paul is the grace of God. Yeah, he was headed to kill Christians, mm-hmm. and and God just revealed Himself, uh, Christ did, to him. And I can, you can kind of understand that he's on his roll, road to murder and kill and incarcerate, and yet. He, his life gets totally 180. That's right. He is a trophy of God's grace, just like every one of you is too. So it's a mixture of brutal honesty. It's a mixture of intense humility. And it's a, it's a, it's a statement of incontrovertible fact. The only thing that explains the Apostle Paul is God's grace. There's nothing else that explains him. And I, I would believe that every one of you could put in that same sentence instead of the Apostle Paul. The only thing that explains Jim Ekman is the grace of God or anyone else to put your name in there. And that it's important for us. But Paul specifically zeroing in now on his role in the early church. And so it, what follows I'm very least all the saints, this grace was given. And then I put a little equal sign. It's in the grammar we call it appositional. He now explains what that means. What is that gracious assignment, that grace from God? What was that? I itemize out two primary points he's made. These are infinitives of purpose. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what is the first grace God has given him? It is to preach to the Gentiles. As as we saw way up in verse 2, we see it again. His primary focus is to the Gentiles. He doesn't ignore the Jews, as you know, when we studied the book of Acts, and he goes into a town, first place he always goes is to the synagogue, if there are Jews in the city. But his primary emphasis is to the Gentiles. But notice how he, and the ES, is a translation I read from is ESV, but they've done a nice job here of trying to capture this superlative, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, think riches, you can kind of get the idea of that. But the unsearchable riches, I mean, think of that, unsearchable. Well, if it's unsearchable, that means no matter how, if you think of digging, no matter how deep you dig, you're never going to be able to follow it, understand it, and comprehend it. No matter how high into the atmosphere you send your rockets to explore, you're never going to be able to figure it out. So unsearchable means don't try to understand it. As Western, rational, linear thinking people, don't try to understand this. The unsearchable riches 
of Christ. And so then you have to start to reflect and think. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus when he adds to his deity humanity and comes to earth as the God-man. To do what? To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to begin to plunder Satan's kingdom of darkness, and to die a substitutionary death, to defeat death, to defeat Satan, to defeat and conquer sin. He did that, why? Because of his inestimable mercy, his abundant grace, and the great love with which he loves us. I'm just beginning to put pile sentence upon sentence upon sentence of what Paul means by the unsearchable riches of Christ. It has nothing to do with material content. It has everything to do with spiritual power and purpose. This is what I preach. And as you you know from uh, what we did a couple years ago when we studied Acts, as you know from the the material in the Gospels, we've studied a couple of the Gospels over the years. When Jesus shows up, this is what he begins to proclaim. He begins to get people's attention. And then Paul continues that same message by proclaiming it to the Greco-Roman world, and he begins to transform, transform individual people, transform families, transform communities, and eventually the Roman Empire will be turned upside down. By military conquest? No. By the gospel. And so it's just, it's filled with superlatives, but it's an incredible statement to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for God, for ages in God, who created all things. And to bring to light, I put there in, in brackets and put it in blue, to enlighten. Light exposes darkness. Light brings clarity. Light brings specific understanding. Like you're in a totally dark room, you can't see anything, you don't have anything going, you turn on, all of a sudden, everything is exposed. You, you see everything around you, you have, and the, the brighter the light, the more clear your understanding. And so when Paul says to bring light for everyone, what is the plan? Now Paul's talking about content. Um, he's talking about the very specific content of the mystery. It's all the details of salvation, all the details of the covenant promises, all the details of Christ's plan, all the details that deal with what, what God is going to do as he sends his son back to earth in the second advent to finally and forever deal with the issue of evil, finally and forever deal with Satan. That's all a part of the plan that he has revealed. That's part of this mystery. It's hidden. And notice again, and Paul loves to do this, and I don't want you to miss it. He defines God with that, that little little relative, relative clause there, who created all things. Now, just think of that for a minute. He wouldn't have to, he wouldn't have to put that there. He could just say, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all in ages, hidden for ages in God? Put a period. Oh, got it. Understand what he's saying. But he adds... 
who created all things. And it's to remind us of the important and profound nature of our God. He is not only the God of salvation, which is now explained to us by the, by the plan here that is so clearly stated. He, not only that, but he's the creator of all things. God is the creator. And now listen, and this is what is very hard for the 21st century human being to get because they don't want to get it. If God is the creator of all things, you are accountable to that God. And so that, that, becomes, a, that it becomes a profound truth that the New Testament keeps reminding us of this, that God is not only the Savior, God is the creator. And if we're accountable to him, then he is also provided through his salvation plan centered in Jesus, his redemptive plan centered in Jesus, how we can have a relationship with him to deal with our problem, which is sin and rebellion against him. So Paul just ties all of this truth into a, a nice, neat knot for us to unravel and say, oh. And so for the Gentile, and this is really important, for the Gentile, the Jewish person who hears the message already understands Genesis 1 and 2. They already know God is the creator. They already know he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. But for a Greco-Roman person in the A.D. 50s when Paul writes this letter, they, don't be they believe that creation is, and it's very complicated, it's all wrapped around their mythological stories and tales that deal with Zeus and, and Apollo and, and, and Aphrodite and, and Mercury and all of those gods and the interconnection. And they believe that it goes all the way back to the Titans and, I mean, all of these unbelievably complicated stories. And the Bible declares, in the beginning, God created one God. And so Paul connects that for the Gentiles, that this message of salvation is connected to the God who created all things, to whom you're accountable. And so it's a marvelous unraveling of theological truth that Paul is proclaiming. So as he unravels the mystery for the Gentiles, for the Greco-Roman world, he ties the idea of God as creator. And if you look at Acts 17, when Paul is in the Areopagus, he's on Mars Hill dialoguing with the philosophers and the Stoics and Epicureans. That is exactly what he brings up. My God is the creator of all things. And your poets even refer, and Paul quotes two of the Greek philosophers to drive home that point. And it's, it's a marvelous reminder that you and I not only believe in a God who saved us from sin, but we believe in a God who created all things, to whom we are accountable. And he has provided the means by yep. which we can have a relationship with him. Yeah, this is Woody. Could I ask a question? Absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, it kind of helped me with the refresher. I'm wondering when the, the year or the time that God ascended and that Christ ascended and in the time, I mean, how many years later God met Paul on the road? Okay. Yep. And then, and then what year is Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians? 
All right, first of all, Jesus ascends back to the Father in May of AD 33, May 24th to be exact. The, the 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 salvation experience of Paul on Damascus Road is late 35 A.D. or early 36 A.D. Paul writes the this is part of his prison epistles. Paul writes the letter of the Ephesians in in the 50s. So that's you know not quite but close to 20 years after he meets Christ on the Damascus Road. Does that answer your question, Woody? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay, good. That's a good question. Uh, Jim, you know, you mentioned he created all things. And it's really just a miracle when you think that in the beginning God created. And everything that we have today, our tables, our chairs, our lighting, the jets, everything that exists today was made from materials that were part of the original creation and will be in the future until time is no more. It's just amazing that, I mean, the mind of God, who can know it, is so true. And yet all of this is designed to help us, like air conditioning that came on in the 50s. And, you know, all the, quote, modern technology goes back to the beginning of creation. Think of that. And it's just like, He's, he's above our pay grade by quite a bit. That's right. Including our greatest minds that exist in this world. And that he's given as a part of his creation, we as his image bearers, he's given us a mind to be able to, as his dominion stewards, to figure all this out. I mean, that is too, and it's not original thought with me, that too is an aspect of God's common grace. That he enables, because of our minds, which is part of how he created us, to figure out how you can harness energy to such a, a degree that you can keep your house warm in the winter and can keep your house blessedly cool in the summer. That is, that's an example of God's common grace. Humans have figured it out, and praise the Lord they have. But that that they have been able to figure out means that God, who's given them a mind to figure out how everything in God's world works so that they can, as his dominion stewards, use this for their own comfort as a gracious blessing from a good and gracious God. I was struck by, and maybe you were too, a couple of years ago when the American NASA program had fired that rocket nine years earlier at Pluto, and they hit it. You remember that? Probably you don't remember that, but that was that was incredible. And I thought, as soon as I heard that, I thought, praise be to God, because all of these scientists and all of these astrophysicists and everybody was involved in prop. The reason they could do that is because God created a universe with mathematic precision that you can fire a rocket from the United States of America and nine years later hit a target way out on the edge of our solar system. That is not only the, the, the incredible mind of scientists who can figure all this out, that also says something about God. That's the kind of universe God created, where that kind of precision is possible because of how God created his world. We've come to understand that. 
All right. So I just wanted to make sure that you didn't just stumble over that and say, God, who created all things. Yeah. Okay. Got that. This is, this is incredibly important that he adds that little relative clause. It is saying something to the Greco-Roman world that shakes up their categories. And it shakes up the category of the secular naturalistic person in 2021. Because the, the secular naturalist person of 2021 does not want to believe that there's a God who created everything. Because if they believe in a God who created everything, the corollary to that is they're accountable to that God. And that is not something they want to accept. All right, verse 11, a very important result clause. Because of everything he's been saying about his ministry, preaching to the Gentiles, bringing to light that which was hidden, the result is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, let's think about that for just a little bit. Through the church. Now, we learned in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2 that the church is now made up of Jew and Gentile, equal in all new covenant blessings. That is profound, that's deep, it's radical. But Paul says, by means of, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. How God could effect Jew and Gentile together. To whom? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who are the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? If you go over to chapter 6 of this book, which we'll get to probably in November or something at the rate we're going, but when we get to chapter 6, a tremendous passage on spiritual warfare, these are the titles, these are the ranks. These are the, this is the hierarchy of the angelic beings who marvel at God's grace. And Paul says, the church, which we learn back in verse 7 of chapter 2, which are the trophies of God's grace, are also a means by which God's wisdom is revealed. And so I see no reason why we can't understand the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places as both the evil and the good angels. Jesus calls the evil angels the fallen angels those who joined Satan in his rebellion against God. But they will see the church is, the church is a proclamation, a living proclamation of God's wisdom. Only God could do this. Create a new living organism, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, where Jew and Gentile equally share in new covenant places. That is a, an enormous manifestation of God's wisdom. And the angels shake their heads in absolute bewilderment. I am amazed at what our Creator has done. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter, I think it's 1 Peter, that the angels don't understand the gospel. The angels don't understand what God's grace is all about. Well, for main reason, they, they don't need the gospel, and they don't need to understand God's grace. Their situation is sort of like frozen in a way. 
And so they, they just marvel at it. And here again, they just marvel at God has done. And it's a manifestation of God's wisdom because only God could do that. And so you see this, you see this again, man, you and I have to just be reminded the church is an institution is an incredible, supernatural, marvelous, fantastic institution that God's created. I've said this before, and I'll repeat it. God has created three primary institutions through which he does his work. The family, the first thing that was created, first institution created. The state, government, first mentioned and detailed in, in Genesis 9, and Noah gets off the ark, and then the church created at Pentecost. Three great institutions through which God does his work. And the church is that institution, that, that spiritually vibrant, robust institution of spiritual life that's the body of Christ, that, that is proclaim and live out the gospel, but it's the manifold wisdom of God revealed. Only God could do this. And you and I need to see, despite the church, I've been in church ministry almost all my, even I was in academic ministry, I still was involved in the church. All my life, the church is a messy thing. It's a very messy institution. Because it's made up of people who've come to know Christ, and they bring all their baggage to church now. They bring all their challenges, all their past, and, and you have to deal with all that. You have to people help people grow spiritually. You have to be able to help people get on with their life. They don't look back, they now look forward. All those wonderful truths in the Scriptures. But the church is still the most fantastic institution God has ever created. It's still the only institution that really, really gets me excited and thrilled. Government and politics doesn't get me excited. It makes me angry. It makes me frustrated. And in a sense, the church is that fantastic institution where you really see the marvels of God's grace enshrined and embodied. And that should continue to marvel each one of us. That's what Paul is saying. If there's any example of the manifold wisdom of God, he's going to show us off. He's going to show us off to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. This is what it's all about. And then he concludes, this was according, that's a kata, the standard, this was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This plan was hatched in eternity. Before the foundation of the world, in another part of God's Word, it stated, this plan, this purpose was laid out. And that's why Paul says, everything I've been discussing in chapter 2 and now through chapter 3 was part of the eternal purpose of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, because it will be Christ, Messiah, Jesus, Savior, Lord, Sovereign of the universe— Notice those three titles, Christ, Jesus, Lord, all in the person of Jesus. This was realized in him. It's the incarnation. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Good Friday and Easter. And then after that, we should celebrate Ascension, but most of your churches don't celebrate Ascension, but they should. That's all tied in to what Christ has done. It's the eternal purpose. And then he adds, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through our faith in him. And that, that 
is a re- rehashing of something you said earlier, but it's also a rehashing of one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews. That because of what Jesus, because of this eternal purpose worked out in Christ Jesus our Lord, you and I have boldness and access with confidence. Boldness and access with confidence for what? Boldness and access with confidence with whom? Boldness and access with confidence to whom? That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, who works out the eternal purposes of God, the Father, you and I now have 24-7 access to God, and we can approach him with boldness and with confidence. And so it's, it's, again, this incredible truth. What should excite us in the 21st century was absolutely thrilling to the Gentiles in the first century. You mean this God whom you're talking about, who came first to the Jews and established that covenantal promise with Abraham, we can have access and a relationship with him as well? Yes. And in this new institution he's created, the church, which is the body of Christ, you are equal with the Jews in that new institution. What? Yes. And you have the same access they do, the same confidence they had, the same boldness they had, because you're a new creature in Christ, and you're equal in spiritual blessings in this new institution, the ecclesia of Jesus, the church of Jesus. You are his body. Now that, I know we, well, I know we just don't get excited about spiritual truth in this Bible study, but that would be the kind of truth where it would be okay if you would say amen. Now just hide it, don't say it to anybody else, but that's just one of those things that, wow. Look what God has done. All right? And he concludes, So I ask you not to lose heart of what I am suffering for you. Remember, he's in prison. (laughs) And he writes to them this letter when he's in prison. And they're concerned about him. And he says, don't worry about it. Don't lose heart about what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And again, it's appositional. That's why I put a little equal sign, which is your glory. Now, and what does that mean? That I am suffering for you. And even writing this is, is actually bringing glory to you because I, the apostle of the Gentiles, am helping to build up you, the church at Ephesus, which really brings glory to Jesus, but also brings glory to you, because this is what it's all about. And so it's a, this is a just tremendous passage of Scripture. 3, 1 through 13, all right? Am I... Can can you... You guys can't hear me, right? We hear you fine. Oh, you can yep. hear me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fred just sent me a note that I, it's, I'm not connected. I, I, did, yep, I thought, we'll see you. Okay. I thought, and you can hear me. Yes. Yep. You got quiet okay. there for a second, but you're back. You're okay, okay. Good. Okay. I, I thought so. All right. So if you've heard me, then, you know, uh, I, I pretty much tied everything together here with verses one through 13 of chapter three. Any, um, any final questions about this? Uh, it's quite marvelous paragraph. 
before we move on. What time is it here? Oh, my goodness, it's a quarter of. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's a wonderful place to stop now that we're done. All right. Well, good. If there are no questions, and apparently there aren't, then I'm going to probably pray, And because next week what we're going to do is we're going to start verses 14 through 24, which is another one of these prayers of Paul, which is we studied a little bit about uh, one of his great prayers in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 15 through 23. Here's another prayer. It's a little different, and it, the content of it is quite significant. So we'll deal with that, and then we'll start chapters 4 through 6, which is the application of these doctrinal truths. All righty, if there are no questions, then I'm going to pray, and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we're very grateful for the truth of the gospel. Paul says he is a minister of the gospel, the good news, but he, rephr he rephrases it as a gracious gift given by God, a gracious stewardship. It's a stewardship of grace. And Lord, he saw and understood that in such a profound way. Thank you, too, for this incredible institution that you've created, the church, where Jew and Gentile are spiritually equal in the church, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, heirs to the promise, the new covenant promises in Jesus Christ, and a part of the body of Christ, that metaphor for the church. This is an absolutely astonishing truth. For the first century, it was radical and revolutionary. It should be in the 21st century, because in the church, everyone is spiritually equal, there are no divisions, there's no hierarchy, there's no one better than anybody else. We're equal at the cross, and that gives us the confidence and boldness, as Paul just wrote, to have access to you, to talk to you, to have intimate fellowship with you, to be able to share in these new covenant blessings equally together as men of God and men of faith. I pray for these men, give them your, your word as you continue, enrich them spiritually through Bible studies like this, but help them deepen their faith and trust in you and to be the salt and light representatives you're calling them to be. Whatever they specifically do, they are the light and salt of the earth. May they represent you well, and I pray for them in that, in that sense, in the power and name of Christ. Amen. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Thanks, Jim. Have a good day. You too. See you guys.